You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Currently in a sermon series, we are walking through the book of 1 Peter, a sermon series called Living Stones, Building a Spiritual House in an Unspiritual Land. And what we are talking about is everything that God has called his church and his people to embody, uh, and obviously doing that as we walk through the book of 1 Peter. So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you brought your own Bible with you this morning, I'm just going to encourage you to turn there with us. If you did not bring a hard copy of the text and you would prefer to be in a hard copy of the text this morning, you can grab a Bible under a seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we just want you to know that we want you to have access to a Bible at home. Um, And so if you don't have one at home, you are welcome to take that copy home with you as a gift from us. So again, we're going to be in 1st. Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Um, And so if you've turned there, uh, if you would, once you're there, uh, stand up for the reading of God's word if you're able. All right, chapter 2, verse 1 says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Mario is great. You know why? Because he just got back from Cabo. Good for him. <laughs> well, it's a, it's really a, it's a joy to see you. If you don't know me, my name is uh, Ty Gaston. I serve as one of the elder candidates here at Providence and the executive director on staff. Um, I have such a pleasure being able to preach the word to you this morning. Um, here, for those that are here and those that are online, um, we're so appreciative of each and every one of you making us part of your weekend, and uh, we hope that you have felt welcomed and loved and cared about thus far. If uh, you're a first-time guest here, we are apologizing ahead of time that you joined us on Repentance Sunday. <laughs> so that's, uh, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. But so like Lauren said, we are continuing our series in the book of First Peter, which we are calling Living Stones, Building a Spiritual House in an Unspiritual Land. And uh, I'll recap you up until, uh, up until now, so that way we can get, in, uh, get caught up, anyone who hasn't uh, listened to the sermons prior to this point. So in week number one, we talked about Peter is writing to a group of churches in an area called Asia Minor or uh, modern day Turkey, and he's writing to them saying that you are unified underneath one vision, one banner, and that is the gospel and the gospel alone, that you may have different theological frameworks, different political outlooks, you may have different racial ethnicities, but all in all, you are unified underneath one message alone, and that is the gospel. 
And then week number two, we talked about there's an unwavering joy that besets us whenever we set our eyes on Christ because ultimately sin is real, suffering is real. It is coming for all of us, but at the end of the day, we, our joy can be sustained because our hope is set on Christ. And then last week, uh, Brendan did such a good job of preaching holiness that first and foremost, Christ fulfilled the law and died on the cross so that way he can ultimately match the holiness that was required for God to make the punishment of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and Christ's death paid the debt. And so that because of that, we can also live a life of holiness because of what Christ has done in us. And this week and next week might be really the emotional center of this entire series what we're going to read about is where we get our language up here, the uh, building a spiritual house in an unspiritual land, living stones that's coming from this week. And then next week, we're going to talk about who we are because of Christ. And it's going to address the very core of our belief in who we are um, in Jesus. So if you could, would you pray with me as we um, get ready to look to God's word for guidance? Father God, we come before you and we're so grateful that you made a way for us to be here, whether it be here in this sanctuary or whether it be in a living room. We're so grateful we get to sit underneath your word. And so God, we pray that you would make yourself known to us. God, if there is any area where we are misaligned or disobedient or not walking in step with the gospel, we pray that you would make it clear. Spirit, we ask that you would fill our hearts that we may receive you this morning. It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen. So I'm a huge movie fan. Uh, I enjoy the entire experience. If I can't have the experience, I don't go to the movies. It's just a, it is a staple in our house. If I can't eat the worst food, drink the worst drinks, and sit down and watch a two to three hour long movie, if it's a Marvel one, then I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. If I'm on a special diet, I just don't go to the movies. I just wait for it to come out. It's just how it goes. There is no in-between. Uh, my, my wife often confronts me whenever I'm doing something like a, like a Whole30 diet. I'll get ready to go to the movies, and she'll say, all right, what are you going to do? What's your plan? And I'm like, you know I'm running this train off a cliff. All right, I am I'm going down. And so, it's, so she either says, no, we're not going to the movies, or um, she just lets me, you know, fall off. So either way, but, uh, but it's an experience for me and I, I enjoy the experience. It's really nostalgic for me and, and representative of my childhood. And I, I draw my kids into my destruction as well. So it's a, it's a wonderful experience. I love it. I have a great time, especially whenever the movie's really good. And I alluded to a Marvel movie because, uh, one of my best experiences I have, I ever had in a movie theater was whenever I first saw in 2008, the movie Iron Man. And I loved it because every great story has good character development, that there are things that happen to the character that help him become more virtuous, that he starts one way and ends another way. And in the movie Iron Man, you see that on his best day, Tony Stark is an egotistical genius who becomes filthy rich by building weapons and weaponized systems that he sells to the highest bidder. But there comes a time in this movie where he's kidnapped, he's imprisoned, and he's enslaved by terrorists. And while he's in prison, he learned that his weapons, the ones that he created, not really understanding uh, the consequences of what he was creating, 
he learned that they were being used by the enemy to harm innocent people. And, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, sorry, but he escapes. Uh, he, he gets out of prison by building the first Iron Man suit out of steel. They hired him to make a weapon. He chooses not to do it. He builds an Iron Man suit, gets out, and he lives his life completely different. Now, this experience, seeing evil and understanding his part in it, absolutely changes who he is. No longer can he sit idly by and make billions of dollars off the backs of innocent people. While he still has an ego, let's be clear about that, he has developed into a person who lives not for himself, but to fight for those that are less fortunate. And Peter, while he's not making an argument that we're to become a superhero, he is saying that the gospel will not allow us to remain as we are that the gospel creates radical change in our life story and it should completely shape and mold us the minute that we come into contact with it. And if God is going to build a spiritual house in an unspiritual land, then like every good house, it needs a foundation, a strong one, a sturdy one. So let's get to work. First Peter chapter two, verses one through three. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now I'll just come right out of the gate and say here's my, here's my concern for us, not just our culture but our church as well, really Christians in general. Because we live in a culture where going to church is normal, my fear is that we have normalized our relationship with God so much so that his words do not carry any weight. So maybe you've been here a few times and you're saying, well, Ty, I've heard you, uh, heard several of you preach and you always talk about the nearness of God to his people. And yes, you are absolutely right. God will never abandon you. He is always near to you. We must never, but we must never forget about the holiness, majesty, and transcendence of God. This is really captured in one of C.S. Lewis's book uh, called The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you have this interaction between a character named Mr. Beaver and a uh, little girl named Susan. And Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, who's the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. And she's surprised because she assumed that Aslan was just going to be a man. So she tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver if, if Aslan is safe. To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. Yes, our God is a father that vigorously pursued and adopted us as children. Yes, our God is a great shepherd that leads us beside still waters. Yes, our God is a comforter that helps us in our time of need. However, and I hope we never question those things about God ever, but we must never forget that he is holy and he is a righteous king who can and does give commands to us. We need to understand that God created everything we have, we have come to know with his very words. When God said, put the planets into existence, he does it. When God launches the sun in the sky, he does it. Animals, snap, it's done. People, spoken, it's done. God speaks, things happen. So God's words are incredibly important. Moreover, we learn in the book of Hebrews that it says Jesus holds everything together by the word of his power. 
So when God gives a command, when God speaks, we must listen. This means that whenever God says something, we cannot normalize it. It has to be shoved to the very top of things that we consider. We can't treat his words like suggestions as if we have a choice, like choosing where we go to eat. Like right after the service, I'm going to take a bunch of uh, high school boys out to lunch, and I'm going to ask them. I'm going to say, all right, Bud Ruckers or Torchies? I'm going to make them choose. But listen, let's be clear. I don't care what you think. Both of those are good decisions. So we can't treat God's commands the same way because when God gives a command, one is a good decision and one is a bad decision. We either listen and obey or we reject him and don't. One leads to our destruction, one leads to our prospering. So we can't treat God's commands as suggestions at all, but we must follow suit with whatever he commands of us. So the command here in verse number one, to put away malice, to put away deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, we have to consider those as commands. Not He didn't say, you know what, if you're feeling good, if you get enough sleep tonight, when you wake up in the morning, think about putting slander away. Might make, might make your life better. No, he doesn't. He makes a command, put it away. So he says, put away malice, anything done out of ill intent. Put away deceit, anything done with a hidden motive. Put away hypocrisy, commanding others to do or don't do uh, something despite the fact that you do. Put away envy, wanting to be someone or to have the advantages that they do, which is one that I struggle with. And to put away slander, bringing a false charge or accusation against another person. These commands that God gives us require us to assess our life where these things might exist and to take an ax to the very root of them. And that pursuit of holiness is a very serious business that God calls us to. And so maybe you're asking, but Ty, doesn't everyone struggle with sin? And yes, yes, they do. Absolutely. We're all sinful, not just in action, but by nature as well. But that doesn't mean that we get to keep it around. And it certainly doesn't change the fact that God called you to do it. If God has called us to do it, it does not matter. We see, we can't play this, this silly game when we start comparing ourselves to one another. Ah, oh, well, if everyone struggles with it, it must be okay, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's just normal. We can't get in a game with God in regards to holiness. If God calls us to do it, even if we're the only one in the room to do it, we must be faithful. So what does that look like? This doesn't look like you white knuckling your way through it. You just gritting your teeth down and saying, I will will myself to obey God. That doesn't work because ultimately that leads to pride. And even if you attain it, it's going to lift you up on a platform where you look down on other people that can't. But instead, what does this look like? It looks like treasuring Christ above everything else. And those things, and, and the things that you struggle with, the things that you um, have a hard time getting rid of, they lose their grip in your life because you've treasured Christ so much that those things, they pale in comparison to the God of the universe. That you're so fixated on God that you're not even worried about what you have to give up. Let's keep reading. First Peter chapter two, verses two through three. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
So I have two wonderful kids, uh, Caleb, who's seven, uh, Lauren, who's five. And the decision and timing that we, that we used to try and figure out when we were going to have that second kid, like Caleb, we knew. We, were, we knew what we were doing there. With Lauren, uh, like I've mentioned before, we, Caleb was born with club feet. And so we knew that his, brace, his braces and system for correcting the feet were going to take about four years. So we were like, you know what? Let's wait four years and have the second child. So that way there's not any pressure for Caleb to feel like he's left out or there's no like room to be made fun of, anything like that. We were considering those things. Well, that didn't happen. Um, so we, my kids are 18 months apart. Um, we, we ultimately decided, you know what? Like for me, I have a sister that I'm close to. We're 18 months apart. It was a, we felt like it was the right move. But having that newborn with an 18-month-old, that was rough. That was rough. Because the, the appetite of that newborn for milk and sustenance was absolutely insatiable. It just never stopped. Like she, like she just, she wanted to eat every three hours and she didn't care if you were sleeping or not. And so you ended up getting arguments on whether or not you're, who's gonna wake up and who's gonna do what. And you're just like, you're talking in that like raspy bear voice at three o'clock in the morning. It's, uh, it's rough, but it's because the appetite of a newborn is insatiable. And Peter tells us to long for Christ, to long for his word, to long to be like him, to long to grow up and apply God's word in our life in the same way that a newborn longs to eat. So what does that look like for us? It means that God's self-disclosure of himself is in God's word. And this leads me to my first point that we must long for the word of God. That inside of God's word, we learn about who God is. We learn about who Christ is. We learn about sin. We learn about who we are in light of God's holiness. And when we, what we learn in the Bible ultimately determines what we believe about God. And so longing for God's word is incredibly important. So pure spiritual milk for us is a Holy Spirit inspired understanding of the word of God that leads to, get this, an application of the word of God. So it says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That means an application is absolutely necessary. Simply knowing your Bible is not good enough. Playing this information game is not good enough. It's like pouring water in a cup with a hole in it. It will never stay. It will never remain. I, in fact, I would even argue that if you're not applying, you don't truly understand. Because listen, what I said earlier, if God's words are paramount and filled with authority because he created the very universe that we live in by his words, then that means when he speaks, we must listen. If my daughter looks at my son and says, hey, you need to go sit at the dinner table because that's what you're supposed to do. He's probably gonna laugh at her and tell her to go away. But a dad comes in the room and says, Son, I need you to go sit at the table and eat your dinner, like I've said. And he either says, yes, sir, or gnashing of teeth. That's the other option. Just kidding. There's not violence in my house, I promise. Maybe. Anyways, uh, so the truth is, is that when someone with authority speaks, we must listen. And so if we are not applying God's word, then I... Uh, 
two things. Either we don't really understand it or we don't truly hold reverence the God of the universe. One of the two things. But rather, as we read God's word and understand it more, we should be applying. And as we apply, we begin to treasure Christ all the more because more is revealed about God. And the Holy Spirit awakens this idea that we need to grow in Christ all the more. Yesterday at one of our uh, new members classes, we walked through this thing called the cross chart. And it's the idea that every believer has a timeline and then eventually they meet Christ. And that, that meeting Christ moment is a conversion moment. And in conversion, two things happen. Repentance away from sin, turning to faith in Christ. And as they mature, there's a, a wedge that grows. And that on this line, you have God's holiness. And on this line going down, you have your sin. That as you mature in Christ, you become more and more and more aware of the holiness of God juxtaposed against your sinfulness. And so the only way to bridge that gap is by a bigger and larger understanding of the gospel. That the more you become aware of God's holiness and the more that you become aware of your sinfulness, you become more and more aware of your need for Jesus. And so actually, as a believer, as you mature, you should be repenting all the more because you become that much more aware of how much you don't meet God's holiness standards. You become that much more aware of God's love for you in Christ, that he would welcome you into his family. Let's keep reading. First Peter chapter two, verses four through five. As you come to him, so that's as you come to him, knowing the word, applying the word, putting to death sin in your life, a living stone, this is Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse number five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this leads me to point number two, we must commit to the people of God. So there's a couple things to really take note here in this, these two verses in verses number four and five. For one, we notice that Jesus is labeled as the living stone. In some, in other passages, he's referred to as the cornerstone. In other words, we have to build our life off of him. The cornerstone was this idea that every time you go to build a building, there you start in one corner, and that corner is going to dictate how straight your lines are, whether or not things go up and down perfectly straight, the structure of your walls are sound. The cornerstone is vital to the integrity of the house, integrity of the building. And so Jesus is the living stone, but because we are being made into the image of Christ, we ourselves are like living stones. So we're, so if, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to know this stones don't live, right? So stones are inanimate objects, but we are, so, so that means that the church is not a building, a concrete building, but instead it's a people that God made living and abiding. Something else to notice that it says that we are being built, that we're not fully built yet. It says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That there's this idea that we're not gonna reach perfection on this side of heaven. That Christ is using everything from triumph to trial to shape us into the image of God. And that if there's a setback, it's not actually something that, that removes that identity, 
but instead further pushes you in into Christ by his grace. It's this ideal, so whenever my, my children were learning to walk, when my son fell down after taking a couple steps, I didn't chastise him for it. I celebrated. He took a couple steps. That's awesome. And then he got back up and he tried again and maybe he took two steps. Maybe he had a setback and only took one, but he progressed and he was being, and he slowly but surely learned how to walk. And as believers, this is, the, this is what that idea means that as we come to Christ, knowing the word, applying the word, putting sin to death, we are being built up step by step by step. We may have setbacks, but Christ's grace is bigger than our setbacks. There's also this idea that we are being made into a holy priesthood. And, this, and don't hear anything Catholic here because that's not what he's getting at. But instead, he's saying that there once was a time where the only people that could access the holy area of God were the priests. But no longer because Christ was the great high priest who went into the holy of holies both as the lamb and the priest, finished it once and for all. So that way everyone can have access to God the Father that we are being made into a people who are in, we don't need any man to be a mediator except for Christ. And so we have been given access to go before God boldly in any given moment. And then lastly, that we're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I'm gonna use another text to really help explain this. Romans 12 verses one and two says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this idea of having a spiritual sacrifice is laying aside your sins and allowing the Bible to be the final authority in your life. Listen, we cannot allow culture to dictate what we believe. We cannot allow our origin stories, the way that we grew up and the experiences, experiences that we had, whether good or bad, to dictate how we live. The Bible has to and must be the final authority in which we live our lives. And this is where the idea of being built into a people, being committed to the people of God comes into play. This is why community is so important because you don't have, you don't understand blind spots until someone points it out. That's why they're blind spots. It's this idea that you can't see it. So when somebody comes to you and points out an area that you may not be walking in step with the gospel, you shouldn't be surprised by that because that means you are blind to it. If you could see it and were aware of it, then it wouldn't be a blind spot. But the best thing that ever happened to Peter, who wrote this letter, the best thing that ever happened to him was in the book of Galatians when Paul confronted Peter in his partiality towards a certain group of people, that he was giving special treatment to one people over another people because of their race. And Paul walked up to him, didn't give any political jargon, but instead said, your life is not in step with the gospel. And likely Peter didn't see it. And maybe he, maybe he knew, maybe he didn't. We, we're not aware of that. But what we do know is he had a faithful brother that came alongside him and pointed out his life that wasn't in step with the gospel. In fact, Ecclesiastes 4 says that we should, that woe is the man who doesn't have a brother to lift him up. 
that there's this idea that you cannot live life without other people. We were made to intertwine our lives alongside one another. And that biblical community sets the framework for that, which means that you and I need to have people that know that last 10% of us, that most people are gonna get 90% of me, transparently like speaking. They're gonna get 90% of me. And that 90% is very authentic, but there is a, there's a small group of people that get that last 10% that know me. Listen, we can't, if, it would be unbearable to have every single person know every single thing about us. But to have that small group of people that know every single struggle, that know every single bend, they know my story, they know where I fault, they know where I'm, I have blind spots, they know when to call it out, they know how I receive feedback, they know how I... Um, really get to listen to constructive criticism. They know me deeply. And so whenever they, whenever they come and confront me in a life, in a, in a way that is loving and caring, I'm able to receive it because I know that they care about me. And so each and every one of us need to have people in our life. It's the reason why we do, we do home groups here at Providence and we drive everything that we do through those groups because we believe that we must be known and that we must pursue knowing others. And that by doing that, Christ is using those relationships to build us into a spiritual house, the church, which the Bible calls the manifold wisdom of God. So in other words, the outside world should look into the church and what they're doing and say, that's God. Like that reminds me of what I need. That shows me what I'm looking for by looking into the people of God. Let's keep going. First Peter chapter two, verses six through eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The gospel itself is an offense that puts in its very path a fork in the road that forces you to either kill or embrace sin. It forces you, it forces you whether or not, it doesn't allow you to really choose whether or not you're going to do it. It's going to make you choose whether or not you're going to kill things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander, or allow it to stick around. And this is difficult because we live in a culture that wants to make those things normal. I mean, we have shows that have all, all, every single one of those in them. Jesus, however, is going to separate those that accept him and those that reject him, which leads me to point number three. We must obey the son of God. And I'm gonna use another portion of scripture, Jesus's actual words in Luke chapter six, verses 46 through 49. So if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. But while you're getting there, this is Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He's beginning his ministry and he's outlining what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And he's redefining godliness. He's not, he's not paring it down, but he's actually expanding it. And he's saying, it's not, it's not simply good enough to say you didn't commit adultery, but instead, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have already done it. It's not good enough to say you didn't murder someone, but if you look or at someone and hate them, you've already done it in your heart. The covenant of grace expands the requirement for holiness, doesn't take it down. I know the temptation is to say, well, grace covers all, right? 
Grace covers all, so therefore I can do whatever I want. Actually, no, Paul says the opposite. He says the opposite in 1 Corinthians, that if just because sin exists doesn't mean that grace abounds. You have to lay an ax to it. And so Jesus confirms this. So in verse number 46, he says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I mean, I've spent years, I spent four years in seminary, and I never read this and, un, and really like caught the frankness of Jesus when I read it this week. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Straightforward, right out of the gate, Jesus is addressing how we see him. So several years back, there's a sarcastic news outlet called uh, The Onion, and they, uh, they ran a fake story with a headline that said, I do what I want, says the man about to get fired. And it's a funny headline because we recognize that, it's, that an element of truth is present in all things that are humorous. But, so like on one hand, we recognize that if, there's a, if there is a workplace where employees did whatever they wanted and blatantly ignored the rules that the boss gave them, they should be fired. But at the same time, Jesus presents a challenge to all of us in Luke chapter six. He says, if he is Lord, then why don't we do what he tells us to do? And Lord is different than teacher. Lord is different than good man. The rich young ruler who later on in the gospel comes to him and says, good teacher. And Jesus says, good, why do you call me good? It's not that Jesus wasn't good. It's he was confronting the idea of how he perceived Jesus. He's not going to allow you to simply refer to him as a teacher. He isn't asking the question, which is, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He isn't asking that question because he wants an answer so that we can explain our behavior. I mean, honestly, what in the, what in the world do we say to that question? What genuine excuse can we give? But the same is true here. Jesus doesn't want an answer. He wants a commitment. Again, it is in the confession that Jesus is Lord that we are saved, the Bible tells us. Now, the idea here isn't simply that there's this formula that if you just say Jesus is Lord, everything's great. No, Jesus says that a lifestyle recognition of him as the Lord of Lords is what confirms that commitment. That you cannot say Jesus is your savior without submitting to him as Lord and to try and separate salvation by Christ from the Lordship of Christ is absolutely impossible. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing about, um, that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's confronting the idea that Jesus will not be known by anything other than the God of the universe. Let's keep reading. Verse number 47 in uh, chapter, Luke chapter six. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man 
building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation of the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without the foundation. And the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus is saying that the one that listens and obeys, that says, you are my God, you are my Lord, I will do what you say. He is a man that builds a house on a firm foundation and that there's an intentionality to it, that he didn't just go willy-nilly into life and say, okay, I'm gonna build my house here and not really consider what's going on. But instead, this man got the landscape of the land, found that this is gonna be the right place to build and that, he, that yes, it's gonna be difficult to get to, but I will dig deep to get there because it's worth it. And it's going to take hard work, labor, pursuit. But if I'm going to build my house on a right place, it's got to be on a firm foundation. That is the man that calls Jesus Lord and means it. That is the man that builds his life on Christ, that allows the gospel to filter every single decision that he makes. But conversely, in verse number 49, the one who hears and does not do it, He builds a house differently. So he builds a house on what Jesus says is the wrong foundation, the wrong place. Almost like he didn't put any effort in at all. Almost like he was given, given the context that we read this scripture in, it's almost like somebody came to this man, said, hey, you should go build it over here. And he's like, nah, I got it. I'll go over here. And the man builds his house on a foundation that is not stable. It's almost like he felt like he figured it out. And what we need to learn from here is that anything in our life that is built on anything other than Christ is sure to fall. Because here's the thing. There's one common theme that happens between each of those stories. The storm comes. The stream is coming. We know that. And the man that built his house well, the stream came. And the man that didn't and disobeyed, the stream came. That means suffering and sin are real and will affect all of us. If we haven't experienced suffering, we will at some point because sin is a very active thing in our world. So the, the idea is not that the stream's never going to the stream's never gonna come, the suffering's never gonna come, that that storm isn't gonna be there. It will, whether you're obedient or disobedient, but the one that is able to sustain with unwavering joy, with love for those around him and not fall into bitterness will be the man that builds his life on Christ. And if, and if you do anything else, it will surely fall. Those are the words of Jesus. And so what I want to contend for you, and you go ahead and stand, and I'll close with this. What I want to contend with you is to consider the areas of your life that aren't built on the gospel, that aren't built on Christ. That Christ is is not just coming in with a hammer to say you either obey or disobey, but instead he's welcoming you into a relationship where he truly knows what's best for you. That even if it's not what you like, it is a firm foundation that will lead to your joy, that will lead to a life alongside the Lord that loves you. So friends, I would ask you, consider where you aren't walking in obedience, whether it's at work, whether it's with family, 
whether, we, whether it's with friends, maybe you're watching the wrong things on TV. I don't know what it is, but, you're, but you should consider where maybe you are not walking in obedience. And Christ is welcoming you into a relationship right now where he wants to lead you beside still waters. But remember your king that gives us commands that we may walk in a life that is faithful and integral to the God that has so graciously saved us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we love you. We lay our lives before you this morning. We're so, gracious, we're so grateful that you chose to die for us, that you made a way, that you didn't just stand above the heavens and allow us to try and figure it out, but that you condescended into our world and you made a way for us to be able to engage with you again that you adopted us as children, that we now have a heavenly father that is after our good, even in the bad. So God, in the areas that we're not walking in obedience, whether it be too difficult or we just haven't really considered it, God, we pray that you would make, make it known where we have strayed away, where we are not in step with the gospel. Make it known where we can realign our lives back to your will. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.